The wind howled. The clouds flickered over. The harvest Pumpkins sat on the doorstep. Candles flickering within. And on the streets, costume feet pattered around. It was the night of the ghosts and the walking dead. Welcome to the Real Time Roots podcast. I think I'm your host, Christiel. And this was my co-host, Sarah. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about how to prepare for the zombie apocalypse. Because if you are prepared for zombies, you're prepared for any emergency. Let's get started. So, first of all, why zombies? And besides the fact that this is October and you might be listening to this, you know, in December or January. So we want to set the context that you are listening or we are preparing this in October. And we've just come through National Preparedness Month. And the CDC in 2011 actually started offering a preparedness guide called the Zombie Preparedness Guide. And so we're kind of hitchhiking on that. Now, to be fair, the CDC removed the Zombie Preparedness Guide from their website in 2021. I'm not really sure why. You might want to look at that original preparedness guide and see if you have any insight into it. So they no longer offer the Zombie Preparedness Guide, but you can still find it on the Wayback Machine on the internet. And we'll leave a note in the show notes so that you can have a look and see what you think. It did contain some useful general preparedness information. Uh, For example, they recommend having an emergency kit in your house and what it means. It's for sure not just a stash of avocado toast and tequila. Though the tequila might be useful. Absolutely, because you could use it for wound washing, right? So generally, um, I've heard a lot of negative things about preppers and preparedness and some people accuse them of hoarding and so let's get that on the table right away what's the difference between preparedness and hoarding I have an idea but I know you have an idea too Sarah so what is your when you think about preparedness and you think about hoarding what's the difference well number one if you're preparing for something or a stockpile of food, you are planning on using it up within a reasonable time frame. So my definition of preparing is something as simple as taking, oh, the September trip to Kelowna, our nearest large towns, and stocking up with enough toilet paper, paper towels, and non-perishables at Costco that I don't have to go back to Costco until March. Because of the snow on the mountain roads. Because there's snow on those mountain roads. And honestly, I don't feel like doing a two and a half hour drive with a toddler on snowy roads. You mentioned toilet paper. And I think this is a great time to talk about toilet paper as it relates to zombies, the walking dead, you know, that kind of thing. Because I happen to... Dressing up as mummies. Because I happen to know that that was one of the first things that people grabbed when... The big nasty hit and the stores ran out of toilet paper. And I think it had something to do with the zombie apocalypse because strangely, 
The houses in my neighborhood are covered in toilet paper right now. Why would they do that? Well, they had to do something when they found out they weren't going to use up their stockpile in two years. Does toilet paper go bad? No, but some people might decide they want the storage space. And if you've been glaring at your neighbor for the last two years and getting frustrated with them, you might have decided to toilet paper their house. Oh, fun, fun. If you decide to do that to your neighbor, let me know and I'll come help. (laughs) I hope you have a stockpile of toilet paper, though. Only what I need. Ah, right. So the other difference between preparing and hoarding is that preparing was something that historically people did every single summer and fall when the harvest came in, they preserved it so that they, both food and remedies, so that they would have it to go through the winter. Think about your grandmother's or great-grandmother's time frame when they would take pictures of ladies with their root cellar full of canning. Or squash or potatoes or onions. And people were so proud of all of the food they had preserved in the summer because their family would be consuming it throughout the winter. And when the new harvest started coming in the next summer, they would have all those empty jars to refill. And so hoarding and preparing is not the same thing. They're two different things. And the major difference between them is that when you're preparing, you plan to use what you prepared. You're not just stocking up on something for the sake of stocking up. It's, It's kind of like having an insurance policy. Hoarding could be like random, like buying whiskey when you're not a drinker because you might need it to trade with somebody somewhere down the road or... Or cigarettes for the same reason. Yeah. Um, or ammunition for the same reason. Right. That that could be classed as hoarding, especially if you're not a person that uses that, but you're just kind of grabbing it because it's there. So when it came to the toilet paper lockdown shortages... Some people were buying for friends and neighbors and they actually intended to use them and pass them around so that everybody had some. Um, It helped elderly people not have to go to the store because their neighbors were picking up for them. In other cases, people intended to resell at a higher price. That was hoarding. And reselling at a higher price when there's a shortage is known as scalping. Yes. And and Mm. we're not... Sounds like something zombies might do. I just want to say that we're not advocating that kind of behavior. We're saying, you know, it's okay to stock up on what you need. One of the easiest ways to stock up and and to prepare is to buy a few things on each shopping trip. So if you would normally buy, let's keep going with the toilet paper thing. If you normally buy one package of toilet paper, buy two, and then you have one in reserve. If you normally buy um, a flat of tomato sauce, buy two. Or beans. Or beans or um, canned corn or canned vegetables. Buy two because then you have it in reserve. In or- So you're going to eat one this month and then the other one you have in reserve for an emergency. Another option would be if you normally buy one flat of tomato sauce or beans, say per month, buy the next one at the six-week mark or the three-week mark. And then you have a little bit of, you're not doubling your grocery budget for that item. You're just bumping it a little sooner. So you have a little bit of backlog from the previous flat you bought. And if you just keep doing that, say buy it at a two or a three week interval instead of a four week interval when you've used everything up, you can gradually build up a back stock, three, four cans at a time. 
the good thing about that is it allows you to take advantage of sales. So if you're, or if there's at the farmer's market as the food's coming in, like for instance, right now corn is available and- And pumpkins. And pumpkins and squash are available. And so if you buy it now in bulk, you have it for the winter, but also to stock up for longer into the season. And if there is an emergency- um, you have it already. You don't. You're not the one running to the store to to find out the store is sold out because the hurricane's coming. And if you're going to the store right near Halloween, you might find sales on jack o' lantern pumpkins. And while they're not technically pie pumpkins, they're still edible pumpkins and can be used to have, say, canned cute pumpkin, or make pumpkin puree to put in the freezer. So you can also take advantage of things that are sometimes classified as decorative, but are actually food. Food. So we mentioned the easiest way to prepare is to buy a few things at each shopping trip. So what you're going to find if you do that is that over just a few months, you start to see that you have some food stored to prepare you for emergencies. And we'd like you to have a goal of, and this is also what the CDC recommends in their brochure is to start with having 72 hours of food, water, and emergency supplies uh, put by that's easily accessible so that if there is an emergency, you're okay. You have water, you have food, you have light if the power goes out. And then once you have that to move on and get a week's supply. And then once you have that to get enough for a month, because in a real emergency, it can take days for emergency crews to get to you. And so you want to make sure that you're comfortable and able to survive in that short period. And then if it turns out that the emergency is longer, you can get a longer supply. Now, we as a family always work to get enough food and other things to get through the winter because we often get snowed in. Even just last last winter in November, there was a, a tremendous storm in Vancouver and all our supply trucks come from Vancouver. So it actually cut off our highway and there was flooding and the highway was taken out by the floods. It took from November 14th all the way to uh, December 24th before the highways were open. So in all that time, there were some shortages in our grocery stores. And because we had stocked up for the winter, we were not putting pressure on the grocery stores to supply our needs. It left food in the grocery stores for the people that couldn't take advantage of the um, harvest season and weren't able to stock up ahead of time. So in that respect, you're doing a service to your community by stocking up when food and items are readily available during the harvest season. On the subject of having water on hand, you want to make sure you have enough water for your family as well as for your pets in case water gets cut off. And I found one of the easiest ways to keep uh, potable water handy since I have a deep freeze, is as I'm taking out my summer and autumn frozen food and using it during the winter, I fill up my emptied milk jugs with water from my filter tap and put that into the deep freeze. And sometimes I'll even just set the jug outside to freeze before putting it in the deep freeze. And it takes up some of the space. It helps make the freezer more efficient. And in the summer, as I start putting stuff in to freeze, I can just pull out the jugs that I don't need to have in there. 
and it both helps keep my freezer efficient and means I have frozen water on hand if I ever have issues with water. That's a great idea, Sarah. The other advantage of that is if there is a power outage, having that extra frozen water will fill up the spaces in your freezer and make your freezer last longer in a power outage. So generally speaking, you have 48 hours of freezer flex time in a power outage before you start to lose food. But if you have a full freezer, you have longer and you can even make that last longer by putting a wool blanket over the freezer to hold in the cold. Just make sure you monitor and remove the blanket as soon as the power comes back on. Otherwise, it'll hold in heat. That's right. That's right. So if you have been listening to our podcast for a while and you are preserving food for winter, you're already prepared. We're really wanting to talk to people who haven't thought it was a priority yet, um, how you can prepare if you haven't already started to prepare. So as I mentioned right now, if you're listening to this in October, the farmer's market is full of corn and squash and onions and potatoes, garlic, things that uh, most things that can easily be stored. Um, Corn, of course, should go in your freezer or canned or or even dehydrated. And then um, all three rule of three. Yeah, the rule of three. Check that podcast episode if you don't know what the rule of three is. We'll make sure it goes in the show notes. Absolutely. And then things like squash and onions and potatoes, they can be stored in just an unheated bedroom or a basement room that, that doesn't have any heat in it. And they will, generally speaking, keep for at least until February, sometimes all the way till May, if you have a cold storage that can be kept around 50 degrees. Of course, there's also more to preparedness than just getting your food and water squared away. So some of the other things you might want to think about, whether you are an experienced food preserver or preparer, is lighting in case of power outages. That can be preferably candles in non-tipovable containers and non-grabbable containers. Personally, I like solar lamps because they don't have any heat element and a grabby little baby who loves lights won't burn down the house on my over my head. So one of the things about candles is they can double for um, heat as well. So if you don't have any heat because the power is out, um, you can use candles for um, somewhat of a warmth. Well, you can make a space heater with candles using a terracotta pot and several candles, but you're going to want to set it up on something that is away from pets and away from kidlets. Absolutely. So if you have a cat that jumps on the table, you're going to have to adjust and take that into consideration. So I really like the idea of solar lights too. Um, And one thing about solar lights is that you can take them outside, you can charge them during the day, and then you can bring them in and put them in a, you know, the spike in a jar and just have it as a light around the house. Great for um, if there's a power outage and you want to have a light always in your bathroom to be able to find the bathroom um, because often bathrooms don't aren't near windows and, also, and even the cheap solar lights will usually last till about 2 a.m. Yeah, so they're great for, you can't turn them off, so you don't want to have them in your bedroom, but they're great for like hallways and bathrooms and maybe on the kitchen counter. You also want to have a way of cooking if you don't have power. Um, so think about that. There's a lot of options. Um, if you are heating with wood, you can put a pot on top of your wood stove. If you're not heating with wood and 
Um, other ways to cook would be a gas barbecue or briquettes or even a wood space heater, like um, a portable one that you you would use. Just make sure that you don't have that in your house because it can use up the oxygen. Um, any kind of propane heater you don't want to have in your house because you can end up with carbon monoxide building up inside the house. Keep any type of propane heater, charcoal heater, wood-burning open flame heater. Most likely you'll want them on, say, a covered porch that has a screen door that's always open, or maybe in a slightly detached sunroom where you can have the door open so it's protected from wind and interference from critters, but isn't bringing high levels of carbon monoxide into your house. That's right. But there are ways for light, for heat, and water, and food. And then the other thing is you want to make sure that you have a way to protect yourself as far as like warmth for blankets. If you're relying on electric blankets and the power goes out, you're going to want to have an alternative to an electric blanket. So wool Wool blankets. Wool blankets are the perfect thing because they retain body heat, but maybe you would have, and and they're easy to find at thrift stores. I like to have a stash of wool blankets. Um, I pick them up at thrift stores and um, have them for times when there are power outages or just because we have some unheated bedrooms in our house. Um, Now, the one thing about wool blankets is they can be itchy and little kids with really sensitive skins might not like that. So it's nice to have some poly blankets, polyester blankets or acrylic blankets to just be a layer between a kid's skin and the sheet so that they don't feel the prickles. And another thing you can do is if you have, you can set up a type of tent to help people be warm enough to sleep and to preserve body heat. If you don't have any heat whatsoever in your house, if you set up, say, a blanket tent or an actual camping tent, say, in the living room, and get everybody to sleep on pillows and blankets and stuff inside the tent, you'll preserve and concentrate the body heat from all of the people in the house. And you'll also have more dead air space between you and the colder outside walls. And that can help you stay warm overnight. So we've been talking about sort of general preparedness, um, making sure you have food, water, lighting, heat, ways to cook if you lose power. Another thing that's really important is having sanitation. You want to make sure that you have water for washing hands. If you don't have water, you want to make sure that you have access to hand sanitizer. Super important. And then you and also- or wet wipes wet wipes are great. And and I'm not saying get a year's supply. I'm saying have enough for 72 hours to a couple of weeks. Especially if you have a baby, you're going to want diaper wipes um, and have those things on hand. You also want to have a way, if you can't flush your toilet, to take care of your body needs. So um, having garbage bags and a plastic bucket is really helpful because you can tie them up and remove them from your house to make sure that there isn't any buildup of bacteria or smell. And stick the bucket outside when you don't need it if you don't want to waste bags. It'll also get rid of zombies. It'll definitely deter any zombies that want to be knocking at the door. And then another thing to think about is communication. This is often gets left to the very last thing and, and often gets missed. Um, if power is out, the cell towers might be down. You might not have a phone. You want to have an, an alternative way of communicating with friends and neighbors. It, that might be signals, uh, might be uh, shortwave radio. Um, there are very sophisticated systems that people use among their families. Just 
do some research on that. That's something to consider. You want to have a way to communicate. And then an alternative transportation if you no longer have access to gasoline because the power is out, the gas pumps don't work. What would you do instead for transportation? Because walking is not always going to be the best idea. I live in a small town, so I can walk everywhere I need to go. But Chris lives out in the middle of nowhere, minimum 10 kilometers from the nearest tiny little town. So walking 10 kilometers in potentially snowy weather would not be a good idea. And besides, it's hard to outrun zombies in the snow. If growing some of your own food sounds like something you're ready to do right now, I've got the perfect next step for you. My Fill Your Salad Bowl workshop is a concise workshop that will show you how to grow enough greens to fill a salad bowl every day. That's a great first step, just to fill a salad bowl. It's not overwhelming and anyone can do it. You can do it even if you don't have any land, even if there's three feet of snow covering your garden, even if you've killed houseplants in the past, and even if you don't think you have a green thumb. Here's what we cover in this workshop. Now remember, it's a concise workshop. It's not gonna take a long time to go through, so everyone's gonna have enough time to do this. You'll learn three different salad green growing methods that you can implement right away. You'll learn the exact methods I use to keep my salad bowl full so I never run out, even if I have unexpected company. You'll also learn where to cut costs and still be successful growing salad greens at home. You'll learn the ideal equipment to use if you want to grow greens faster and easier the unique pitfalls to avoid with indoor and container growing. You'll learn how to save a crop that goes wrong, where to find organic seed at reasonable prices, how to store your seed so it stays viable for years so that you can save money now on bulk seed purchases. And you'll learn the health benefits of sprouts, microgreens and healthy greens and how to optimize these benefits in the way you grow them and the way you store them. We'll also give you 17 ideas for using homegrown salad greens in the kitchen so they never get mundane. If you're ready to start growing some of your own food and you think salad greens are a great place to start like I do, check the link in the show notes. So we've been talking about general preparedness, and now I want to transition to specific um, health-specific preparedness, because in this season three, we're, we're mostly talking about herbal remedies and how to naturally enhance your health and support your immunity. So what should we have in an herbal apothecary to fight the zombies? In this case, we're talking zombies as in germs and viruses and bacteria. Number one, elderberries. Elderberry syrup, elderberry gummies, however you take your elderberries. If you're not allergic to elderberries, you definitely should have elderberries in your herbal apothecary. They do prevent viral replication, even for the virus that must not be named. And if you don't know anything about elderberries or want to review on elderberries, check out our season three, episode five, that was all about elderberries. Number two, lemon honey cough syrup. The lemon in it loosens mucus. The honey has antibacterial properties. It also um, helps moisten the throat and stop cough. And it tastes amazing. 
And technically speaking, you can just take a spoonful of it, mix it with hot water, and you have lemon honey tea. And it's better than Neocitron. Absolutely. And it works. Exactly. That's why it's better than Neocitron. What else should we have in our herbal apothecary for the zombie apocalypse, Sarah? Well, a lot of us probably grew up being told that echinacea was the best thing to take when you started getting a cold. And so echinacea tincture. So if you're growing echinacea, which I highly recommend because they're beautiful and they attract pollinators, you can use the flower heads uh, for echinacea tincture. You just harvest nice, beautiful, moist flower heads, cut them up. Um, I just slice them, throw them in a jar, pour brandy or vodka over them, cap it, shake it once a day for about 30 days, strain it, and it's ready to go. Or you can buy echinacea tincture at the store. And uh, it's in Costco. It's at most drugstores. Easy to find. Easy to find. Easy to get. Helps keep you safe from zombies. Sounds good. Now, I understand that zombies do not like heat. They're very cold and they don't like to warm up at all. And so fire cider is the perfect remedy against zombies. Are you saying I'm a zombie because I don't like fire cider? Could be. Fire cider increases blood circulation. It also supports immunity. It's also very warming. Some people don't like it because it tastes very hot and spicy, but that is why it's so great. If if you want to make your own and you don't like hot and spicy things, you can make it milder by increasing the amount of echinacea in it or put something sweet tasting in it. Hibiscus. Um, hibiscus is a Gross great hips. one. Rose hips are good too. Lemon balm, which is also antiviral. Um, any of those things, you can remove some of the fire, like maybe don't use the horseradish or use milder peppers, use poblano peppers instead of cayenne peppers. There are ways that you can adjust fire cider to make it less spicy. Or you can use your your spoonful of fire cider and mix it in with something like a salad dressing where you have other flavors to counteract the spiciness. Or just some oil to counteract the spiciness. And if you want to know more about fire cider, catch our episode about fire cider. It will also be in the show notes. What else do we need, Sarah? Well, vitamin C is a great boost to our immune system. And rose hips are one of our North American natural sources of vitamin C. So another great herbal remedy to have prepared for the zombie apocalypse is rose hip tea. So a little bit about rose hips. During World War II, when Britain was cut off from the mainland and couldn't get a lot of the drugs that were coming at the time from Germany, because, of course, they were at war with Germany, the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts and the elderly went through the countryside harvesting rose hips and mothers made rose hip syrup. The rose hips were also given to the pharmaceutical companies to make vitamin C out of so that the Britons had vitamin C to keep their immune system strong and also to prevent scurvy. And you can make vitamin C by just making uh, vitamin C syrup out of rose hips or rose hip syrup. Rose hips are also high in other antioxidants like lycopene, which is not just great for the immune system, but also great for um, your heart and uh, for, um, if you're a man, for the prostate gland. 
And then the other thing that I like to have in my herbal apothecary is several uh, really basic essential oils. And one of the things about essential oils is they're very strongly antimicrobial and they can be used for a variety of things such as uh, making homemade cleaning solutions or using them uh, for wound care or even just to cleanse the air in your house if it starts to get a little stale because you have an emergency, there's zombies outside, you can't open the windows and you want the air to be a little cleaner. Using lemon, lavender, peppermint, eucalyptus or fir, they can clean the air and they can really help with that. Beeswax candles are also great, but if you have a toddler or a child in the house that might be grabbing the flame, you want to be careful to keep it out of reach of children. Never leave a burning candle unattended. But beeswax candles have a quality where they take the positive ions, which are bacteria and bad smells, out of the air and uh, basically consume them, bind to them, drop them to the floor so they can clean the air that way. As long as they're pure beeswax, you're looking at 100% beeswax candles for that, not um, not um, blended. Not blended. You don't want to use paraffin for that. Or soy wax. Uh, soy wax doesn't work for that either because it's been hydrogenated. Uh, beeswax candles will have that unique quality. And you can also use the essential oils like eucalyptus, lavender, peppermint, and fir for um, steam inhalation and just generally to help with breathing, stuffy sinuses, etc. They work as well as Vicks VapoRub, if and, not better. And you can make a vapor rub out of them by combining beeswax and some olive oil. And then just um, generally you want to put seven parts of olive oil and one part beeswax and mix them together and melt it in. In a double boiler. Or, or in just a heat-safe glass measuring cup, like a Pyrex cup, um, in, a, in a pan of water. And then uh, heat it together, melt the beeswax, and then when you take it off the heat, stir it up, and then add in about 12 drops, well, depending on how much oil you have, about 12 to 20 drops of any of these essential oils we're talking about, and you can make a vapor rub. Or a couple of each. Use your nose to guide you because a lot depends on how much oil you start with, how many drops you want. We're looking for about a 2% essential oil concentration. For adults, 2% for adults, you want 0.5 of a percent to 0.2 of a percent if you're making a vapor rub for kids. Um, a kid. Anyone under six. Yeah, that's right. So when the zombies come, we've got a big problem because we can't go outside the house. We can't go to the drugstore, so you need to have everything already in the house or you hope that somebody can get it for you and can navigate the zombies that are outside. What happens if you don't have anyone who can navigate the zombies? Well, you might have to try and navigate the zombies yourself. So in that case, take elderberry before you need it because it'll help protect you if you're going out among, well the zombies. And during the zombie apocalypse, your neighbors might need elderberry. So if you already have some elderberry, you'll have some to share. Okay, moving along. If your kids are in school, you might find that the zombies show up more frequently. So make sure you're well stocked up. Yep. Kids can be little gremlins. And zombies apparently like hitching rides on gremlins. 
So we've already been through the pandemic and you know how quickly things can change. So right now we're in a lull. Take this time to get better prepared. Make sure you have on hand the remedies you need, as well as preparing for any emergencies that might come. Now is your chance. So take advantage of it. Be prepared. Not scared. So this has been a kind of a tongue-in-cheek episode. We've been talking about zombie apocalypse, but you know that's a fiction. There really isn't a zombie apocalypse. It's a fiction to help you kind of get your mind around getting prepared, especially if you haven't made it a priority up till now. So thank you, Sarah. That was fun. I really enjoyed that. I hope our listeners enjoyed it too. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. And as always, like, share, and subscribe. And make sure to check the show notes for all the relevant links. Bye for now.